The following is a podcast from Live It, a ministry of St. Marcus. For more information or for message notes, go to www.liveitmke.org. Over the course of the next five weeks or so, we're going to be taking a look at this series of how the gospel overwhelms anxiety, how the, how the gospel provides keys for overcoming anxiety and depression. But tonight, just kind of an introduction to how the gospel overwhelms anxiety as opposed to being overwhelmed by anxiety. And in recent years, I've gotten much, much more open uh, in sharing my personal struggles with this uh, throughout the years. And part of my inspiration for that is the Apostle Paul, um, who the Apostle Paul did not hesitate uh, after his conversion to share uh, about his prior spiritual weaknesses. Um, so, in other words, it wasn't just the fact that prior to his conversion, the Apostle Paul was not a Christian. It's the fact that his unbelief manifested itself in decidedly violent, self-righteous ways. And then God humbled him. And in the process, the Apostle Paul then spoke quite candidly about his former weaknesses. And through that portal, the grace of God showed that much more brightly. That seems to be the way when you study scripture of how God typically operates. He is glorified specifically, not just despite, but through our weaknesses. I personally have had massive, severe struggles with anxiety that started all the way back in adolescence. I later was diagnosed with something called obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD, if you're familiar with that. Uh, it, it basically is the idea of dealing with obsessive, unwanted thoughts, negative thoughts uh, that you can't get out of your head, um, and they're in some area of life that you deem particularly important, that you obsess about, and over time, uh, about the only thing that you can do to relieve the anxiety attached to these unwanted negative thoughts is to go through this compulsive, ritualistic behavior. And oftentimes, it, it comes in the form of ritual uh, counting, ritual cleansing kind of stuff. There was a period in my life where I literally washed my hands upwards of 100 times a day. Uh, during the winter, my hands would, would get so dry that they would crack and bleed, and it was, it was visual, you know, evidence of anxiety for me and my fear of, of germs and contamination and that sort of stuff. As you might imagine, um, a lot of it, as with many mental health uh, disorder things, it's a control issue. And um, it's, it's one little aspect of your life that you're trying to get, a, get control over when you feel like life is spinning out of control. And anybody that stands in the way of you getting to life where you think it needs to be, you become very hostile and aggressive towards, you get very angry very easily. Uh, just like the Apostle Paul, I had, and in some respects continue to struggle with, um, a an issue that at its core was the result of spiritual weakness. Now, this is not to say that all mental health situations are simply the product of spiritual weakness. Um, in fact, next week we're going to be taking a look at things like um, depression and how the Bible has a very balanced and nuanced approach to it. The fact that there are, are genetic factors and uh, cultural social factors, nurture factors, all sorts of things like that that can contribute. None of that, however, changes the fact that at its core, 
my anxiety largely sprang out of a lack of trust in God. Now, there were a bunch of different things, uh, techniques that I learned along the way that, that helped to relieve some of the anxiety and manage some of the stress in life, but without question, the greatest asset uh, to my growing beyond some of these things that I experienced was the result of spiritual growth. And it took me a long time, like with many things that we struggle with in life, it took me a long time to be able to actually talk about it. Um, but I'm absolutely convinced that I'm a Christian here today, at least in part because God allowed me to go through an extended period when I was about 18 years old of a tremendous amount of anxiety uh, that ultimately resulted in a long clinical depression. Um, it was about eight to ten months or so worth of literally every night I would go to bed and get down on my hands and knees and ask God that I would not wake up the next day. That's well, about the only thing that I ever prayed for, and it, it got that bad. Um, I had no, by the way, I had no desire to be a pastor. I only ever ended up going to pastor training school, not because I wanted to be a pastor, but because I viewed myself as being on something of a spiritual journey and investigation of truth, and I thought that that schooling was probably a good way to go about and trying to figure some of that stuff out. So what I'm saying is this has been a big personal issue for me throughout my life, but I've also come to understand that it's not just a me issue. Anxiety is an everyone issue. You don't have to have a, a psychological mental health disorder or anything like that to be impacted by anxiety. Every single one of us who lives in a fallen world routinely deals with the inevitable anxieties and stressors of life. We all have this conscious or subconscious vision of the way our lives are supposed to go. In other words, if you want to know where anxiety ultimately comes from, it's right here. Imagine that you have kind of an arrow extending out from you, the path on which you think your life is supposed to travel. Now, invariably, life never goes that way. And when you see yourself in your life veering off the path that is the ideal that you've set for yourself, the distance between where you think your life is supposed to go and where you perceive your life to actually be going, the distance between those two lines is directly proportional to the amount of anxiety that you experience in life. In fact, my guess is most of your prayer life, which we'll talk about tonight, has been spent trying to sell God on hopping on board with your plan for your life. And so the way you see your life going, you're trying to bend him over and say, no, 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 God, I know, what, I know the best way. I know what needs to happen in order for me to experience happiness and fulfillment and contentment in life. God never promises that you and I are not going to face stress-inducing situations. Um, in fact, Jesus actually says, if you become a follower of me, there are some more stressors in life that you will face that you never would have faced if you were not a Christian. He doesn't promise that you're not going to experience anxiety. What he does promise is going to give you every necessary resource to navigate through the stressful situations of life. And therefore, Christians, you're cheating yourself if you choose not to use and leverage those resources. So what we're going to do in the next five weeks is I'm going to try to teach you some of these things that are gospel promises for relieving some of the inevitable anxiety in life and managing that. Um, and tonight, we begin by taking a look at what we're calling thanking and thinking. I'll keep it real easy. Thanking and thinking are the two words that you have to remember tonight. Our text is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9, and we'll read it in two sections. First of all, verses 4 through 7. 
The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the God of peace, or the peace of God, excuse me, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The key word, the operative word here, obviously, is the word anxiety or anxiousness. Now, the word for anxiety in the Greek language is a fascinating little word called merimnao. It literally and technically means to be divided into parts. Now, one of the interesting things about anxiety is what happens at a mental and cognitive level eventually happens at a physical level. level. In other words, when you are, are disrupted by unwanted thoughts or anxious thoughts, um, it, 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 it doesn't just stay refined to your thought patterns. It starts to affect the rest of your life. It starts to uh, cause headaches. It starts to cause stomach problems. Things like ulcers, uh, colitis are the result of prolonged anxiety. Your immune system gets absolutely destroyed by anxiety. What happens on a mental level begins to inevitably happen at a physical level. Furthermore, one of the other things about that word merimnao is I'm convinced, and I didn't see this in any commentary, but I am convinced uh, from a language standpoint that it's two separate words in Greek. It's the word mera and the, the word nao. Mera means divided into parts, and nao is the Greek word for temple worship. In other words, I'm convinced that anxiety really at its heart is an idolatry issue. You have conflicting loves and conflicting wants and when you feel yourself being torn in multiple different directions, it produces anxiety in your life. At the very least, though, what, what merimnao is, is it's this concept of anxiety. Now, I already said God makes no promises to us that our lives are going to go exactly the way we want and that we're not going to experience stressors in life. In fact, in the past, we've said in order for you to develop into a well-rounded, fully uh, developed person, you have to face some adversity in life. You can't get stronger without resistance. And therefore, in order to produce character in you, God, if he loves you, has to allow some adversity to come in your life. The catch is he gives you resources to deal with all of the stressors of life. And one of the greatest assets he gives us for dealing with anxiety is prayer. Now, here's the thing. Some of you say, first of all, that's very cliche of a pastor to say, well, you're anxious, you should just pray more. Secondly, some of you experientially start to doubt that and get cynical and you say, I've tried that. I've prayed lots and I don't get any less stressful. In fact, I mentioned earlier that there was a time in my life where I prayed for, for months that God would not allow me to wake up the next day. That didn't make me any less stressful. So simply asking God the Apostle Paul says, is not what relieves your anxiety. Notice what he says here, because I guarantee many of us are not praying this way. What does he say? He doesn't say simply ask God. He says, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. See, I know a lot of Christians, myself included at times, who are asking God for things and aren't feeling any better or any less stressed out. Why? The catch is you're not praying with thanksgiving. Well, you say that's counterintuitive. How am I supposed to thank God for something when he hasn't even given me what I'm asking for yet? You can absolutely do it. 
It comes when you acknowledge that God, in his infinite wisdom, knows how to juggle the endless possibilities of your life better than you do. In other words, when you pray for something, if it is in your best interest, a loving God, without question, will give it to you. However, if what you're asking God for is not in your best interest, then a loving God not only will not, but if he truly is loving, cannot and should not give that to you because it would not be a blessing to you. When you pray with thanksgiving, what you're acknowledging is that God knows infinite things that you do not know about your own life, that you are not qualified to run your own life, but a God who knows everything, loves you enough to die for you, and is capable of doing anything, he alone is worthy of telling you how your life is supposed to go. When you pray with thanksgiving, you're acknowledging that, and I guarantee to you, when you pray with thanksgiving, it will reduce your anxiety. Uh, let me give you a biblical illustration of this. Maybe the best biblical illustration of this, now that I think about it, is, is maybe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But let me give you another good one. Um, Daniel in the Old Testament. You're familiar with the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Um, certainly a stress-inducing situation. What happened was the king of Babylon was convinced by some of his friends to issue a decree that everybody in Babylon who did not only pray to him over the course of the next 30 days would be executed. Well, Daniel overhears this, and what does he do? He sticks to his routine. He goes back home, he opens his windows, he gets down on his knees, and he prays. But you notice what he does specifically. If you went to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, specifically what the Spirit goes out of his way to say is, Daniel prayed and he gave thanks before his God. He didn't just run panicking and asking God for help. He ran, he got down, he prayed, but he prayed with thanksgiving. In the very next verse, verse 11 says, and then he presented his request to God. And you know how the story ends? You say, yeah, God answered his prayer and he shut the mouths of the lions. No, yes, it does end that way, but no, that's not the point. Because God doesn't guarantee that he's always going to shut the mouths of the lions. He doesn't guarantee that the story will always end well in this lifetime. In fact, Jesus prayed something very similar and God did not shut the mouths of the lions for him. But the one point of commonality that they have between them is they experience the peace to face the negative circumstances ahead. When Daniel prayed with thanksgiving, that's not the thing ultimately. It was God's grace that shut the mouths of the lions. When Daniel prayed with thanksgiving, that was the thing that gave him the calm and the resource to face the troubles that were right in front of him. You see, in great irony, Daniel, from all appearances, got a wonderful night's sleep down in the lion's den in front of those ferocious animals. And yet, King Darius, in his comfortable palace, in his fluffy pillows, in his high thread count sheets of a king, he didn't get one wink of sleep that night. Do you understand what the life lesson is? The opposite of anxiety is peace. And Satan is tr constantly trying to convince you in life that the peace that you experience will only come through positive circumstances. That's nonsense. It's a total lie. 
Daniel and King Darius disprove that theory. The Apostle Paul himself disproves that theory. Peace that overwhelms anxiety in your life does not come through positive circumstances. It comes with an attitude of gratefulness towards God. See? Pray with thanksgiving. I guarantee your anxiety will reduce, be reduced. Okay? Um, pray with thanksgiving, though. Now, it's one thing just to say, pray with thanksgiving, but you have to have a basis. You have to have a reason for these things. Why should you pray with thanksgiving? Praying with thanksgiving comes from thinking, the second part. Uh, second part of our lesson, in the subsequent verses, the Apostle Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. One of the fascinating things to me about the Christian faith is how very different it is from all the other thought systems of the world. If you're new to the Christian faith, or if you've been a Christian for a long time but maybe haven't been leveraging the gospel resources that God gives you to manage your stress levels, you're, you're going to like this point. Okay? Um, every other thought system of the world says that if you're going to find peace, you have to not think about things so much. Um, now, I don't mean that for that to be condescending sounding towards the other thought the systems of the world, but I do mean for it to sound like a challenge. And I'm willing to stand behind that. All the other thought systems of the world, if you're going to find peace, you have to not think. Christianity, if you're going to find peace, you have to think. Um, now I obviously don't have time to walk through every other thought system of the world here tonight, but let me give you a, an example or two of what I'm talking about here. Uh, I mentioned that the word for anxiety at its core really is the, this issue of being divided or being torn apart. And that anxiety can happen at a personal level and it can happen at a social level as well. Um, so for instance, let's just use a social level to start. It's no, no secret, obviously, that our society is going through some painful um, sort of ethnic division or ethnic anxiety, essentially, right now. And it's led to a bunch of ugly violence, and it should not be, and everybody knows it should not be, and everybody doesn't want it to be. But how are we going to get there? How do we overcome that? How do we get to the point in a society where you cannot publicly acknowledge the existence of God, how are we ever going to get to a point where we say that human lives have value. If we're not allowed to talk about God imbuing all human life with value, if we're not allowed to talk about Jesus Christ dying for the sins of every single person, inherently meaning that they have the value of God's own son in their life, how do you get to that point? If you're just basing it on, on simple world thoughts, like evolutionary thought, you cannot logically get to that conclusion. Um, let, me, let me show you. Uh, one of the leading thinkers in the early 20th century was one of our Supreme Court justices by the name of Oliver Wendell Holmes. Um, in one of his letters of correspondence to one of his friends, he wrote this. He said, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. He says, the world has produced the rattlesnake as well as me, but if I will kill it if I get a chance. My only judgment is that they are incongruous with the world that I want. 
the kind of world we all try to make according to our power. Now, I, I had to, just for time's sake, I had to take out a couple chunks there. Do you know what he's saying? This is textbook survival of the fittest mentality. He's saying that on the basis of evolutionary worldview, there's absolutely no rational way that you can come to the conclusion that a human is more valuable than an animal or a plant or a grain of, of, of salt or sand. What, in, what gives it value? He's working out the implications of evolutionary thought. And by the way, I know you get tired of me throwing constant quotes up there, so I'm holding myself to one tonight. But, and so I'm telling you, Friedrich Nietzsche said the same thing. Bertrand Russell said the same thing. Charles Darwin said the same thing. Today, Peter Singer says the same thing. From an evolutionary worldview standpoint, you cannot make the claim that any human beings really have life or that life in general or in any way truly matters. So what do we do as a society when we experience tension like this? We tend to raise our voices and we, we try to say louder uh, make cases about lives mattering, and it's true that lives do matter, and it's true that we should passionately say that, but saying that, saying that human lives matter is like yelling louder for someone to love more. You can yell it louder, but it doesn't make someone love. You have to compel someone to love. You can yell about life mattering, but you have to understand people have to have a reason why lives in fact matter. And from an evolutionary worldview standpoint, you cannot make that case. You cannot in your biology classroom say you are just a more highly evolved animal that came about through random chance processes and then move into your anthropology class and your sociology class and say, now just treat everybody nicer. It doesn't work. You can't say, well, you're just really an evolved animal. Now stop trying to treat one another like animals. On a social level, it will not work. There has to be a basis for the value of life. On a personal level, it's the exact same thing. Um, if you and I uh, hear, again, in our biology classrooms, that we came about through random chance processes. Bertrand Russell said the random collocation of molecules. That's where human life comes from. And then you go into your psychology classroom and you hear, you just need to have a little more self-esteem. I'm sorry you just told me I was an accident, that my life has no meaning and no purpose, and now you're telling me to experience meaning and purpose through self-esteem. That does not work. That makes no sense. In order to follow these worldview thought systems, you have to not think. On the other hand, there's Christianity. And the Bible is constantly telling you to think about these things and work out the implications of these things. And God, the Bible is constantly telling you to consider if God himself created human life and put his image on human life, if Jesus, God's own son, humbled himself to come into this world and die for every single human being's sins, how dare you or I ever suggest that a human being has something less than incalculable, infinite value in their lives? And furthermore, you've got to use that same resource on yourself. If you're inclined to think that you are worthless, you can't do that. If God himself is willing to die for you, how can you say that your life doesn't matter? How can you think that you are anything less than a treasured prize in God's kingdom that God would give his own life for you? You have to think. This is way more than just positive uh, self-talk therapy, by the way. And I don't in any 
way, shape, or form mean to be dismissive of things like secular counseling. I think they absolutely have a place, and there's, there's a bunch of blessings that can come through uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that. What I am suggesting, one of the reasons why, despite the fact that I thought my career path was going into secular counseling, I ended up realizing I couldn't do it because deep down I realized I wouldn't be able to offer the ultimate solution to the problems of life, the gospel. Because you can tell people to think as much as you want about sunsets and sandy beaches and, and succeeding at life. And you know what? It will do some things like help reduce blood pressure. But you know what it won't do? It won't cure cancer and it won't pay the bills and it won't bring your loved ones back to life. You need something more and I need something more. And by the grace of God, the promise of the gospel says that you and I have something more. The Apostle Paul says, whatever is pure and true and lovely and praiseworthy, think about it. I can find nothing purer or truer or more lovely or more praiseworthy than Jesus and the implications of his love for you. Nothing in all the universe is more important than the fact that in the person of Jesus Christ, God humbled himself to come down to this planet and switch places with us and die for our sins. On the cross, Jesus got, remember the word, merimnao. On the cross, Jesus got divided. On the cross, Jesus experienced the embodiment of anxiety where he was ripped apart and ripped from the arms of his heavenly father whom he'd loved for all eternity. Why would he do that? Because he loved you enough to switch places with you. On the cross, Jesus got ripped apart so that you and I, in our worried and fragile and broken state, broken by sin, could have our pieces put back together and be held together eternally. In the preceding weeks, we're going to work out the implications of the gospel. We're going to think and consider what this means. We're going to think, what does the gospel mean when it addresses all my fears and my anxieties? What about my fear of loneliness? What about my fear of inadequacy? What about my fear uh, of rejection in life? What about my fear uh, of lack of control over my life? What about my fear about the past mistakes that I've made? The grace of God in Jesus, in a word, it, it brings peace to all of these areas, but we're going to work all of those implications out if you haven't thought them through before. For our purposes this week, you've got to remember two things. Thank and think. Bring your request to God and thank him as you do so. I promise you it will help to relieve some of the anxiety of life. And then think through the beauty of Jesus' track record. His cross proves that he loves you to help you. His empty tomb proves that he's powerful to help you. He will only do and allow whatever is in your best interest. Have confidence in that. I know that many of you have been plagued with worry, uh, just like I have been at times in my life, and are desperate for peace and you want nothing less than the peace of God himself. Well, Paul tonight, very eloquently, very skillfully, I don't know if you caught it, he said it comes only from one place. It doesn't come from distraction. It does, doesn't come from numbing the pain. It doesn't come from self-medication. The peace of God comes only from recognizing the fact that the God of peace promises that he will be with you. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, many of us battle a tremendous amount with anxiety and depression and those negative thoughts and feelings of life. 
first of all, I thank you for allowing me to go through some of that and giving me the gospel to help overcome some of that. In this world, we know life isn't going to be perfect, and it shouldn't be because we're preparing ourselves for the life that is to come that really is life, the life that Jesus prepared a way for us into. But in this life, as we face troubles, help us to look to the gospel resources that you've given us. Help us to learn how to work these things out into our lives. Help us to pray with thanksgiving and help us to think about who you are, what you've done for us, and what that exactly means and how it eliminates all possible worries we might have. We look forward to experiencing that relief and we pray all of this in our risen Savior's name. Amen.